This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Hi, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Kutnick, and my co-host today is Maggie Human out of Idaho. How are you, Maggie? Doing great. Awesome. Just feeling the heat of a 90-degree day in Idaho, which is a rarity. Oof. It was really toasty here in Denver today, too, like up in the hundreds. I, I'm not a huge fan. Not yeah. at all. Well, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Um, this is an Artemis ambassador out of North Carolina, and Elisa Davis is joining us. Um, Elisa, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So as you know, we always start out with what's in your freezer. And I'd love to hear from both of you. Elisa, I'd love to hear from you first. <laughs> All right. So um, I have a little bit of venison grind left over from the first and only deer I've ever killed. Um, so I'm super excited to finish that, but I cannot wait for uh, archery season to start on September 9th. Um, it's going to be my first archery season um, and my second season hunting for deer. So I'm ecstatic. Um, I also have a little bit of leftover squirrel cacciatore hanging out in that freezer and uh, some trout and some catfish. That was uh, the trout I caught myself. The catfish was gifted to me from a friend. You're going to have to sh share the squirrel recipe. That should be an Artemis blog. <laughs> yeah, awesome. you don't mind sharing that. I would love to. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I, I don't think I've ever actually eaten squirrel. Yeah. Um, last last year was my first time, or last deer season was my first time hunting. Um, and uh, later in the spring, well, a little bit later into the season, during squirrel season, uh, the friends that took me out deer hunting also took me out to go shoot squirrel as well. 
uh, my first time ever thinking about killing a squirrel and the first time ever cooking a squirrel, first time ever trying a squirrel. So I was all about it. I was very, very excited. And uh, they talked about, you know, fried squirrel, some of the kind of normal squirrel recipes that you kind of see everywhere. And I said, well, um, in Italy, they make the hunter stew, which is cacciatore. Normally we use rabbit for cacciatore or a traditional cacciatore, I should say. So why not use squirrel? Um, and we cooked it following a cacciatore recipe. I threw in a bunch of vegetables and we threw in a bunch of uh, wild mushrooms with it as well and braised it for a very long time. And it was so tender and so, so good. And I don't know if I'll ever eat squirrel any other way. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. What else is in cacciatore? Um, so I've got to think about this. It's tomato based. Um, a little bit of red wine to deglaze. Uh, but you essentially um, brown the squirrel or rabbit, whichever, chicken even. Um, take that out. Throw, I like to throw in various vegetables. I happen to very much like mushrooms and, and very squash, so zucchini, things like that. Um, we got a little creative and just kept throwing stuff in. Deglaze it with a little bit of red wine. Add in um, uh, crushed tomatoes or like the San Marzano tomatoes. Pop it in the oven. Let it braise for a really long time. Put it over pasta or polenta. In our case, we put it over polenta. I think I remember cacciatore means hunter, right? Yep. Did I tra- so it's like a catch-all dish. Like it, that's yep. cacciatore catch-all. You can just put whatever you want to in it. Absolutely. It was so good. It sounds delicious. So well. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Maggie, can you best that with what's in your freezer? Oh, absolutely not. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got some like popsicles for my little kid. <laughs> um, I actually, as far as like um, wild game fare, I don't have too much on the the red meat front. Um, again, just like in the thick of the season of life of babies and things, we did not get out hunting much last year and don't have any um, any birds left in the freezer. However, I did go on a trout unlimited staff not retreat but just kind of a staff gathering fishing day um about two weeks ago on the south fork of the snake river and there's an active effort there to remove rainbow trout because it's one of the last strongholds of yellowstone cutthroat and so anytime we catch rainbows there we tend to want to bonk them and take them home so i do have a freezer full of rainbow trout right now that i'm gonna throw on the smoker at some point and make some trout dip with and if I ever end up not using them, it's really great because I live very close to a raptor center. And so I'll take them there and donate them to the raptor center. Nice. Awesome. I had the best trout dip last week. It was, it was one of my buddies made it. It was unbelievable. And usually I'm a little, I don't know. I, I don't, I feel like people make dips to like cover up the taste, the fishy taste. The fishiness. And, yeah. Right. And it was like, you couldn't detect anything. It was, it was on point. So, and I didn't realize, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you can donate the, um, like the trout that you're not using to the Raptor Center. That's great. Yeah. I may or may not have opened my freezer, uh, 
like a month or two ago and realized I had a brown trout in there that was supposed to be used for a dissection for a trout in the classroom class this past winter. And I was like, oh, that's still in here. Probably not going to eat that. So definitely going to take that to the Raptor Center and, you know, help a, help out an eagle or an osprey that's in rehab there. I like it. I like it a lot. All right, Elisa, let's roll into kind of what we normally do for our podcast. Could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Sure. So, um, Elisa Davis, I am uh, the Artemis ambassador for North Carolina and uh, gosh, uh, military spouse. So uh, that's a very quick way to say I've been all over the country, including Hawaii. Um, Did my degrees in Hawaii, uh, moved to Colorado for a couple of years, which is where I took up fly fishing and then back to North Carolina because our marriage originally started in North Carolina. And uh, I've been here ever since, been here the last seven-ish years. Um, And that was a very, very short version of who I am. Um, Currently, I uh, teach fishing for North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. So I teach everything from bass fishing, cat fishing, um, fish prep and cookery. I teach uh, um, fly fishing, a lot of fly fishing. Uh, Today, we just got done teaching... uh, fishing rod building class for uh, Wind Warrior Project veterans. So disabled veterans for Wind Warrior Project. That's awesome. But you didn't really tell us more about who you are. I no. feel like there's a lot more than just, those are the cliff I'm, notes. I'm pretty, bad. Appreciate. I'm, I'm pretty bad about talking about myself. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll, I'll try to tell the longer story. Are you from North Carolina originally or did you just get there through the military? I am originally from North Carolina, or from California, excuse me, from California, moved to North Carolina, um, lived here for about a year uh, with the military, moved to Hawaii with the military. In Hawaii, I finished my bachelor's degree and then worked on my master's degree. And I have uh, those two degrees in natural resources and environmental management. Um, And my master's degree focused on wildlife diseases and wildlife ecology and management. Uh, and very specifically in the human dimensions of wildlife management for those reasons. During my uh, graduate degree, I went to a human dimensions conference in uh, Breckenridge, uh, Colorado. Uh, Ended up going on a guided fly fishing trip with uh, people that I met at the social for that conference. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a wildlife conference, but one of the highlights for any wildlife conference is a social where you get to meet colleagues and kind of expand your horizons and meet new people, see what everyone else is doing in their research. But uh, I was invited to go on a fly fishing trip with a couple of guys from Finland (laughs) who are super amazing guys. Um, And that was my very first experience fly fishing. From there, Went back to Hawaii and we received orders uh, through the army to move to Colorado. And we lived just north of Denver from there. And uh, I started taking up fly fishing. My uh, husband's great uncle found out that I was interested in fly fishing. So he drove from Nevada to Colorado and stayed with us for about two weeks and taught me everything I know about fly fishing over those two weeks. So, um, I could not cast until I built my own fly rod. <laughs> so I built my own fly rod from scratch. Uh, learned how to tie flies because I 
it would be horrendous if I wasn't tying my own flies uh, to go fly fishing. Uh, learned how to cast and learned how to create my own leaders. So everything you kind of need to get started for fly fishing. He took me out a couple times to go fly fishing, introduced me to um, learning about places to go, took me to Montana, things like that. And uh, it's been 10 years since I've, after Colorado, moved to North Carolina. And it's been 10 years since I've started fly fishing. Um, And from there, just kind of started teaching it. And I love education. Um, Once I graduated from, with my master's degree, I very quickly realized that uh, I very much preferred the environmental education side of natural resource management and the people side of natural resource management. That's so awesome. Um, I mean, very rarely do you run into somebody who's getting into fly fishing that builds their own rod first. So that's <laughs> props to you. That's a that's a really, um, really big feat. I haven't even like attempted to do that yet. Um, but that's also a product of like working in the industry. And I'm like, oh, well, I work for Orvis. So I could just buy one. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's very admirable. And so I assume, do you still build rods if you're teaching classes to do that? And are you still tying all your own flies and all that good stuff? I sure am. Absolutely. Um, I still build rods. Uh, my husband keeps telling me that it's about time that I uh, find a new home for a lot of the rods that I have. And I'm like, what? You can never have too many. Um, I'm in a similar boat. My husband's leaving to go on a horse pack trip tomorrow. And he was like, can I borrow this four weight? And I was like, no, borrow this four weight. And he was like, do you even know how many four weights you have? I was like, uh, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Right. Problems. Uh, Our end is five weights and, and I'm getting more and more into saltwater fishing. So I tie more and more saltwater and bass flies out here in North Carolina compared to living in the mountains out in the Rockies. So. But, um, yeah, like I said, I, today I just taught a class on, uh, rod building for a uh, wounded warrior project. Um, I'm very passionate about, um, teaching, especially for, um, veterans groups, disabled veterans groups, um, for women, um, things like that. So, so you mentioned you teach like catfish and bass fishing and you do, a lot of stuff with fly fishing. And I'm just curious, like, especially being in North Carolina, what's that ratio like of conventional versus fly anglers? Because I know North Carolina is one of those like dynamic states, right? Where you've got, you know, access to the Smokies, access to the ocean and everything in between. So I'm just curious what the, the ratio is like. I could never put a number to it. Um, but I will say that, uh, there's a lot of research coming out of Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation and various other um, organizations that do these kind of statistics. And uh, surprisingly, the Southeast uh, states actually have the highest uh, number of fly anglers in the country. Um, and uh, I mean, both are really, really popular. It's so much fun to uh, get conventional anglers interested in fly fishing just because they're, they're interested in learning something a little bit new, um, interested in trying something that they never thought to try. And, you know, we make it, we make it easy for, uh, everyone to learn how to do fly fishing. Um, and it goes both directions. I mean, most of the people that I know that fly fish also have their bait caster thrown in the back of their car as well. So it's not something that I feel like I can put a ratio to. 
Yeah, there's definitely got to be a good mix in North Carolina. Um, Absolutely. There's a great mix out here. Uh, and there's tons of people that fly fish salt um, and then turn around and go right over to the mountains. Um, I do a lot of fly fishing uh, for warm water species. So smallmouth, largemouth, things like that. Yeah. Between fly fishing and conventional fishing, I don't feel like I can, I can never make a, or put a ratio to it or a number to it just because um, there are fly anglers that switch back and forth between um, conventional fishing. Like they they have their bait caster thrown in the back of them. I know plenty of people that do that. Um, and it's so rewarding to see conventional anglers just try something new. I mean, they, they will come along and say, gosh, uh, my dad always did fly fishing, but it was never something that I thought to try. I never really learned. So when we teach fly fishing, we, we try to make it easier for everyone to get into it and remove those barriers for them to get into those sports. What do you consider some of those barriers? And, and I'm curious from both of you, right? What is it like out East versus out West? What, are the barriers the same? Are they different? Um, is it usually a gear issue? Yeah, I feel like um, there's kind of a misunderstanding of the gear. Uh, fly fishing can sometimes be um, a little more complicated or less complicated, I should say, than, than people think it is. <clears throat> a lot of people think you need uh, a ton of gear and you need to go out and buy everything all at once. Um, and, and, there there's some confusion about what's needed and things like that, or gosh, I don't even know where to start, but uh, we try to simplify it a little bit, just get everyone outside. Um, I think another barrier is just that it's more difficult than they think it is. It's actually fairly simple. Um, especially once you get the memory muscle memory down, it makes it make casting can be very, very enjoyable. And, uh, I guess another missing uh, barrier, a lot of people think it has to cost a lot of money. I don't think that has to be the case whatsoever. Um, and just like a lot of people think they just can't do it. And we try to remove that, that stigma. Yeah. I, I think it's like for both sides of it too, that it's, it can be as expensive or as cheap as you want it to be. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I fished with like an eight foot Cabela's youth rod until I was like 21. And, you know, I don't think I've necessarily, I, I probably, I definitely know more now than I did when I was 21, but I, I don't think it was like a barrier to me catching fish because they knew my rod was cheap, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and it's funny because out West, I see like kind of the opposite thing that happens from what Elisa just said is like you know, as temperatures get warmer. I mean, we talked about that right at the beginning is it's very, very hot for August in every part of the country right now. And, you know, as temperatures rise and small creeks and things that, you know, I used to frequent or people I know used to frequent at this time of year, get above, you know, 65, 68 degrees. And it becomes a challenge to want to fish them because it's putting too much pressure on the fish. You know, a lot, a lot of my friends go do um, lake stuff this time of year and they might switch to conventional gear and, you know, get out on a boat and go catch carp or go catch smallmouth or, you know, drive a little further to check out some species that maybe we don't have in our backyard here. So um, I think it ebbs and flows, but that's, it's definitely not a, you know, elitist thing. And that's one thing I struggle with in my career is like, you know, a lot of times people think, 
it's just like that conservation organizations maybe just target fly anglers and that fly anglers are, are the ones that are more conservation minded. And so that's one definite thing that I would like to see change in my lifetime is like more, more of a, a commonality there that we're all conservationists and we all want to learn about the species and we all want, want to take care of, you know, the land and waters around it and, and just see more conservation implications come from both types of angling. Oh yeah. And I challenge anyone to show me a bass angler, that, like a true bass angler that, that keeps that bass instead of releasing it. <laughs> and is that bass angler is going to be worried about that population. They're going to be worried about the future of that fishery so that they continue to fish for bass or are able, continue to be able to fish for bass. Um, but I think another, another stigma that a lot of people or bit, barrier that a lot of people see to fly fishing is that they think they have to be in the mountains. The only time you go fly fishing for them is going into the mountains and fishing for trout. And, um, gosh, I, anytime I have the chance to go fishing, I'm going for bass and panfish. Um, I recently fished, um, some of the anadromous, um, spawning runs like the striped bass and the, um, hickory shad that were coming up the rivers in North Carolina, um, with a fly rod. And it's so much fun. You don't have to go very far to go fly fishing. What are your, so what are the favorite, your favorite species to pursue in fly fishing? And then also the conventional, uh, my absolute favorite are smallmouth. Um, they fight hard. They're a lot of fun to fight. Um, and just beautiful, beautiful fish, beautiful stripes, uh, and colorations on them. They're my favorite. Um, and I mean, same with conventional too. That's probably my, my favorite fish to go for. And when you're teaching and mentoring people, is that usually, do you usually try and put them on smallmouth bass so that they can, I don't know, I, a good fight. A good fight is a really a ton of fun. And it, I think it really ignites a passion and interest in anything, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, I live about two hours from the nearest smallmouth fishery, so it does take a little bit of time to get to it. Um, I will say the best way to help people get into fishing by helping, I mean, the number one way to get people into fishing is to get them onto a fish and build that excitement, get them very excited for it and realize how much fun it is. And truthfully, panfish are the best way to do that. Um, they're really, really abundant. They're really easy to catch. And for such a small little fish, they fight really hard as well. So I always recommend if you're going to start fishing or try to get somebody started fishing, kids, adults, I mean, any age, get them started on panfish because bluegill, you know, shell crackers or red breast, anything like that. Uh, they're going to be a lot of fun. They're nice and abundant, uh, a nice abundant species. And, and they're just fun to catch. I mean, that's, that's how I got my start growing up in Alabama. That's, that's what we had access to was panfish and smallmouth and catfish and, you know, started on little poppers and things like that. And, you know, just definitely was not associated in my head right out the gate with just trout only. Um, and I grew up in the land of red eye bass and, you know, oh, where, cool. where I'm from is um, in North Alabama. And so it's really been cool to me over the last like 10 or so years to see it really change from like 
this like Bassmaster Lake scene to like so many more people are are fly fishing for these species that were not traditionally, you know, thought of as as a target of a fly angler. And so, yeah, I think it's dynamic in both ways. And like I was just mentioning, you know, during these hotter times, people go seek out more still water opportunities and, and, you know, it could be either way. It can be conventional or it can be, you know, fly fishing and definitely like one of the best ways to go practice for your saltwater fish and your big species and your tarpon and permit and that sort of thing is like go catch carp and lakes <laughs> on a fly rod because it's, it's almost equally as challenging in a lot of aspects, but that's, that's been one really big growing, um, growing scene here of, as of late as the carping scene. So um, I'm sure it's probably the same way in North Carolina too. Oh yeah. And um, the friend of mine that I go hunting with, she's also a fisheries biologist. And uh, she tells me that the carp are very abundant in our larger river systems here. So if you're in North Carolina and you want to try for carp, head down the Cape Fear River. Yeah. And I've heard crazy things about the shad runs too. That's something I've definitely never experienced before, but I've heard that it, it can be a wild time. Oh yeah. I was, uh, fishing with a friend, um, in March down the Roanoke river for, um, striped bass and hickory shad. And, and we didn't, we caught a couple of striped bass, but, uh, the hickory shad were just phenomenal and so much fun because they bite and they bite hard and they fight hard and then they jump out of the water um which is a lot of fun to see for anyone and uh our guide was telling us that uh they're just baby tarpon essentially they're little tarpon so a lot of fun to catch as well so i know you talked a lot about beginners do you also at least do you also teach and mentor um, folks that are a little bit more seasoned Absolutely. So uh, we teach the Joan Wolf method of fly casting, and uh, it's a technique of fly casting that um, really focuses on um, kind of precise movements and building muscle memory so that you can create those tight loops when you do your fly cast. And we get seasoned anglers, seasoned fly anglers coming in and, you know, not only trying to get back into fly fishing, but also to, uh, hone their skills in, uh, all, and that includes, um, going all the way up to our instructor training. So we also teach people to instruct fly fishing. Um, the more we teach fly fishing, the more people we're, we're going to get into fly fishing, which is always good for conservation in, uh, through the North American model. And, um, I mean, I recently taught a beginning fly tying class where I had a seasoned fly tire come in and say, I've never really learned how to do the whip finish and I am only here for the whip finish. So I'm excited to do this. So it's, it's learning their techniques, honing their skills. Um, you know, I, I teach advanced classes to try to help people become more successful in their fishing pursuits, whether it's conventional or fly fishing. So it's always exciting to see the seasoned anglers come in and say, that really helped me get better at what I love to do. And so you do these like train the trainer events and you sounds like you do service projects and you do youth events. Is there 
is it just like a pretty broad spectrum um, with your job, who all you target, or are there more specific demographics? Like, you know, do you tend to do more youth stuff or do you tend to do more seasoned angler stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So we follow um, a lot of R3 principles. Um, and through R3, a lot of what the research has shown is that kids are least in, in control of their time and their money and their travel. So we focus a lot on adults, um, trying to inspire adults to take other adults out because the adults are the ones that are going to get the future generations into fishing. Uh, so we do have kids programs, but a lot of what we do are focused towards adults for those, those reasons. And I mean, we do our best to map our programs on that, uh, R3 model, which is recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Uh, and our hope is that what we're doing is to push people through that, uh, decision to continue. Um, a lot of our programs also fall under the continuation with support. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of outings that we take people on so that they're able to try fishing outside of our center that we teach at. And uh, so the center that we teach at is the uh, John E. Peckman Fishing Education Center through North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. And um, these outings help give them real life experiences, uh, being outdoors and catching fish. Uh, that'll be including fly fishing or kayak fishing or anything like that. That's just an awesome job. <laughs> That's very cool. Like, is, is this like a full-time gig or like a weekends deal? How, how does the structure work? Full-time gig. <laughs> so at least so, I know a lot of people, um, a lot of people have trouble getting into conservation jobs and finding ones that are supportive and things it, and things that they're ultimately interested in. I know you really love the education component. Um, for that crowd, what, what, I guess, what's your, what was your path? I, I know it was kind of maybe, it, it seems maybe a little bit more natural, but I also think that you're highly motivated. But a lot of conservationists and a lot of folks that want to be in conservation and natural resources are also highly motivated. How, yeah, how do you encourage people to, get into those careers as well? Uh, so it wasn't as natural as it seems. I make it sound a lot natural than it really is. Um, For sure. Being a military <laughs> spouse, <laughs> being a military spouse, I've uh, moved around so, ma so much that I've had to pretty much start over um, from square one every time you change locations. But because uh, you have to build up that network and you have to build up that, that history with the organization. Um, so once I graduated with my master's degree and we were almost immediately stationed in um, Colorado, well, back up a tiny bit, uh, during my master's degree and my bachelor's degree, um, I was focusing on school. I had the um, opportunity and the privilege uh, that my husband gave me to focus on school and not have to worry too much about work. So, and I recognize that, um, it was a great opportunity to, for me to, to do that. Um, however, he would be deployed a lot. 
So I had a lot of free time on my hands outside of school uh, and outside my research. So I did a lot of volunteer work as well. And um, building up that kind of history with organizations through volunteer work. And I never had the um, belief that I was going to ever use it in the future. Um, I started out by volunteering for organizations that were teaching kids about the reef in Hawaii. And I volunteered for random bird counts. And I volunteered for um, various education things. At some point, I was a science fair uh, judge um, during my time in Hawaii. And then moving to Colorado, you know, I, I continued to find things to do and uh, eventually landed a seasonal position as an environmental educator with the Colorado State Parks uh, in Longmont. Um, and that's where that really started. Uh, once I was in that seasonal position, you know, I hit the ground running. I absolutely started uh, making connections with local libraries and local schools to bring kids into the state parks, um, create more uh, marketing opportunities for that state park so that more people would go there, provided birding tours, manage their education system there. Um, but eventually we did move to North Carolina and I spent a couple of years in veterinary medicine because um, I wasn't really finding anything that I was uh, truly ready to start working for or, or at least seasonal positions or anything like that. But I did continue to volunteer. And um, a little bit of a long story short, I started volunteering at the John E. Peckman Fishing Education Center during uh, COVID. Um, and from there, they had a seasonal position open up. I applied for it uh, and I was able to get it. And eventually I was able to receive a permanent position with the state uh, in that same position. So I, I feel extremely blessed for uh, the path I've been able to take. But the advice I would always give is to put yourself out there. Um, make sure that you are getting yourself experiences. I think the more experiences you have, I mean, this has always been my, my plan was just to experience as many things as I possibly could. I wanted to explore every avenue I caught I could to get into conservation. Um, and it helped me, it helped me learn that education was the way I wanted to go. That's awesome. I, that's, I mean, that's a long and rigorous path. And, uh, I think, I, I also think that volunteers don't get enough credit for the amount of the work and the, the hard work that they do. So, so thanks. Thanks for, Thanks for investing in a whole bunch of organizations to include Artemis. We really yes. appreciate it. Absolutely. I love Artemis. <laughs> yeah. You're like a super volunteer and a half. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, at, we've got like a crazy stat at Trout Unlimited where like all of our volunteer hours within a year equate to about 400 full-time employees. And I'm sure it's probably somewhere on that level with NWF and, you know, maybe smaller when you break out state by state for their volunteers. But I mean, it's, it's wild the amount of employees that you would have to have to make up what volunteers do. And so, I mean, that's a commendable path that you've taken to, to get to this point. And it sounds very, very well deserved. Um, I do have a quick question, though, just because 
obviously the news has been blowing up with all the Hawaii stuff recently and you haven't spent some time there. Just curious, um, like where, where you did your graduate work, right? And then like what kind of fishing and outdoor experiences did you get in Hawaii? Oh, goodness. Um, what What's happening in on Maui right now just absolutely breaks my heart. And, uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers go to all of everyone, their families, everyone impacted by it. I, I mean, I, I hear information, tidbits of information from friends that live out there, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So I really hope that they're able to find peace and they're able to find growth or not growth. Gosh, that's the wrong word. Um, they're able to find, um, a way through a path through this really difficult time. Um, and I mean, it's really just unimaginable being trapped on unimaginable. I can't even resources. Cause I mean, I just think about the, you know, in the lower 48, like you can drive and fly and get things to a place, but on an Island, I mean, you're, you're so isolated and it's gotta be such a scary time for all the people there. And, you know, thinking about all the wildlife and everything, infrastructure and all, I mean, all the people that are having to flee their homes. I mean, it's just un- unbelievable that this is even happening. But I was curious like where you were in Hawaii. Yeah. So I was on Oahu, um, uh, which is, you could see Molokai from the Southern tip of Oahu. Um, and I went to the university of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, now growing up in California, I fished with my dad, but, uh, once I married, it was never something that I pursued on my own. I was very, very focused on my education. So in Hawaii, I never actually fished, but I did take up, uh, open water diving. Um, I took up hiking and, um, and, uh, snorkeling and, uh, outdoor photography. Um, I mean, everything that you can, at some point I was trying to surf a little bit, but I realized I really didn't care for falling off the board onto the, uh, coral all that much. So, um, that one was a little bit short lived, but I mean, I tried everything that I possibly could while I was there. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Colorado that I really started getting back into fishing and identifying as an angler again. Um, but at some point I did, uh, I was very big on helping fellow graduate students. So anyone in my department, outside of my department, um, one story that I have is that a friend of mine was tagging white tip reef sharks and uh, I was helping him chase white tip reef sharks out of their caves so that we could read the color tags on uh, that were attached to their fins. So that was an amazing experience as well. I'm sure it's a whole lot different than Colorado or or North Carolina, but again, I think all your like diverse experience has probably been what's led you down this path and to a a really awesome career. Um, But I've, I've got like all these funny similarities. I feel like we need to have like a side conversation too, because my, my mother just married a, a Finnish fella and he's also an angler. And so I was very curious about like where you went and 
if the the Finnish folks that you fished with had a different approach to fly fishing or if you learned anything from them? It was my very first time fly fishing, so I wish I could tell you. uh, It was also my very first time uh, in Colorado, so I wish I could tell you that I remember exactly what they were doing and how things may have been different or anything like that. But truly, I was, we went from Breckenridge to the Colorado River. Um, I believe the Colorado River. And I was just, again, my first time in, in Colorado. And I was just so overwhelmed by the landscape. Uh, we were in a canyon and it was absolutely beautiful. And we were walking to our fishing spot and there were black bear tracks everywhere. And I just remember being so overwhelmed and then having the guide tell me how to cast and I couldn't fumble my way through a cast to save my life. Um, so I, needless to say, I caught nothing that day, but I, I mean, it just lit a fire in me and I was absolutely hooked after that. Um, move, you know, once I went back to Hawaii, I said, I want to keep fly fishing, but I don't know how to do it in Hawaii. And then all of a sudden we received orders for Colorado and I was like, perfect. We're going there. I'm so excited. Um, I was wondering that seemed very serendipitous. So serendipitous. (laughs) But yeah, I did a stint in Colorado. I mean, I've left Alabama and then went to Colorado and I was in Fort Collins for a couple of years. So that's where, you know, I went from panfish and, you know, bass and things like that to having a little bit more access to trout streams and kind of growing into that, which is, you know, it's the same, but it's different. And the landscape, like you said, is just an overwhelming change if you've come from somewhere so different. And I mean, I absolutely fell in love with the landscape. Um, I joke with my husband every day that once he retires from the military, we're moving to Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming, (laughs) one of the three. Not Colorado? It's off the plate now? Well, Colorado is a bit expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very. Both of you have already been here. Colorado is just extraordinary, but it's the front range is one thing. It's when you get out west, like outside that kind of I-25 corridor that things get really interesting and really lovely, both on the east side of the state and on the west side of the state. Our grasslands are extraordinary and our mountains are extraordinary and we have an unbelievably large amount of public land that you can explore and enjoy i yes i love colorado but we have definitely increased our population pretty significantly over the last 15 years and um, our natural resources are taking a toll as a result of that but yes so come to colorado but also uh, recognize that there's a lot of other people on their way here or already here. <laughs> What's your timeline on um, him wrapping up his military service and you being able to do that? Two more years, um, though we plan on staying in North Carolina. Um, you know, you promote Colorado all you want, but North Carolina, we have the ocean, we have the mountains, we have um, beautiful cities if you want to check out the cities. Um, our foothills are gorgeous. I mean, we have so many fish species, whitetail, black bear. Um, I adore this state. Uh, as much as I joke about moving to uh, the Rockies, um, I do adore North Carolina. 
and all of the opportunity that we have here just <clears throat> with uh, our forests and going into the Piedmont and our, our mountain streams and, and our coastline is just very beautiful here. Yeah, it's I not, will say all, though, it's not common oh, I'm so sorry. trout and a redfish in the same state. It's one of the very yes. few. I'll definitely have to come visit and spend quite a bit of time there, it sounds like. And with that, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Would you like fishing and hunting information and tips from experienced outdoor women? Want to learn about outdoor gear that works for you? Want inspiration and to try something new in the outdoors? Then subscribe to Adventurous, the only women's hunting and fishing magazine. Adventurous is a high quality print magazine you will be sure to love, and it also makes a great gift for other outdoor women and youth. Subscribe at adventurousmagazine.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. And we're back. We're here with Elisa Davis and our my co-host, Maggie Human. And um, Elisa, thank you again for being here. And I feel like we've covered such a large gambit of topics. Um, but one thing that I would like to chat with you about and, and share with our listeners, um, you mentioned in our conversations before recording um, that you wanted to talk a little bit about um, having a chronic illness and, and how you as a sportswoman um, I guess, navigate that. Absolutely. So uh, I have type 1 diabetes. I've been type 1 diabetic since I was 18, so about 20 years, um, if that doesn't age me a tiny bit. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people, a lot of women especially, that have so much anxiety with getting into the outdoors uh, and having a chronic illness. Um and I feel like it's important to recognize some of those things and recognize that chronic illness can definitely create barriers for, for people um, getting into hunting and fishing um, and any of their outdoor pursuits. So just kind of talking about um, what my experiences are in that, in that aspect, because uh, as much as I love fishing, as long I've, as I've been fishing, um, there are still things that I have to be prepared for as a type one diabetic, uh, being outdoors. I mean, even just a little bit of heat in the day. I mean, we've had some pretty extreme temperatures here in North Carolina and, um, being outside can, can negatively affect, uh, my disease. And I know it can negatively affect, um, a lot of other people that may have, a, um, a, a, an illness that causes them to experience a lot more fatigue whenever they try to go outside, especially in this heat. Um, so, I mean, 
just kind of being kind to yourself. And uh, a few key points I wanted to cover were like things like uh, preparing, making sure that you don't just prepare, you know, the day before or a couple of hours before you go outside, but months in advance so that you can learn how your body um, reacts to uh, being outdoors and reacts to the extra exercise. Um, having a plan and people that know the details and people that can get to you and a support system and having either grit or grr. Um, there are obstacles that we have to face, but we are strong <laughs> with our chronic illnesses and um, just be who you are and own it. That's, I, I have a really dear friend who has um, also type one diabetes. And I would love in, in my many conversations with her, um, I would love to hear how you like, what does your day to day look like? How do you, how do you manage this illness and this disease out in the field? And what things do you have to ac account for and accommodate um, that maybe others who don't have or don't have knowledge of it. How do you communicate that to them? How do you manage that on your own in the field? So uh, my days are very regimented. I get up at the same time every morning. I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time. Um, and I make sure that I'm able to uh, have my medication with me at all times. As a type 1 diabetic, I don't produce my own insulin. Um, so I have to take insulin in some form. In my case, I use insulin pumps. Um, it's made my life so much easier. It's my little bionic, uh, pancreas on my, on my, um, body. <laughs> so it's really interesting. They're so but neat. They're so neat. Um, so having a regimented day, um, in the sense of eating habits, uh, I mean, I am a self-proclaimed foodie. I love food. I love cooking food. I love trying new food and trying new things. Um, but I'm still very careful about the things that I eat. I, I need to be able to count the carbohydrates that I uh, consume as well. <clears throat> when I'm outdoors, uh, really taking into account the weather, what is the heat of the day going to look like, humidity. I mean, I'm in North Carolina. I have to be very, very careful with that. And making sure that I drink plenty of water to um, cover that. Uh, dehydration is one of the factors that cause uh, blood sugars to increase. The heat of the day can increase your metabolism. So anything that you've eaten will affect you a little bit harder. And any insulin that you've had to combat what you've eaten or to correct for a high blood sugar will hit you a lot harder in the heat of a day as well. Um, so usually if I know I'm going to be outdoors, um, on a hunting trip, anything like that, out fishing, teaching a class outdoors, um, I make sure that I eat and take insulin at least two hour, two hours prior to allow those things to metabolize in my system fully before I can do those activities. Um, making sure that I, again, drink plenty of water. I can't emphasize enough how important <laughs> hydration is for a lot of our chronic illnesses um, and making sure that I can manage my diabetes and then having some time afterwards to decompress, let my body catch up with itself, catch up on um, any insulin that I need to correct for 
uh, where my blood sugar is at, things like that. Um, and just generally making sure that my day-to-day routine keeps me within my, in my normal blood sugar levels so that when I have these activities, they don't affect me as hard as uh, they could. Does that prevent you from going out like on your own quite a bit? Or like if you go out with friends, do you usually make a plan ahead of time? Um, I, <laughs> for a very long time, I let it prevent me. Um, for me, now this is not for everyone, but for me, a lot of the reasons I wouldn't go outside was because of my own fear. Um, fear of what could happen if I wasn't in control of what was going on in, in the situation. And I don't let that do that to myself anymore. Um, I, as long as I'm able to plan um, when I eat and when I take insulin, um, I'm able to do whatever I feel like I want to do. I still plan pretty severely. Uh, you would not believe the amount of snacks that I have <laughs> whenever I go outside. Um, I uh, take measures to keep my medication cool in the heat of the day. Insulin doesn't need to be refrigerated while it's in use for certain uh, types of insulin, but um, like within the month that I'm using that vial of insulin, um, it still needs to remain at room temperature, not get too hot. So I still try to keep that insulin uh, fairly cool using um, either uh, ice packs in between a lot of um, bags, just so that it doesn't get too cold or too hot. Um, Or any of the little travel cases that you can get for insulin as well. And just Um, so we're clear, just so we're clear, you have those ice packs in with you in your waders. (laughs) If it's hot, if I, if it's hot outside, I'm not wearing waders. (laughs) I'm wet waiting. Okay. (laughs) They usually go into a backpack. She just talked about overheating. (laughs) Waders are no, no. (laughs) That's a very good, that is a very good point. (laughs) That was like, a bad oh, question. No, no, no. <laughs> it's too hot. I'm wet waiting. I'm in shorts and like basically swimming around as I go. <laughs> I'm embarrassed I even asked that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, but I will say uh, one time I was fly fishing on the Blue River in Colorado. Um, in Jan- It was January 1st on the Blue River. <laughs> Uh, it was negative four outside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my insulin stayed in the car um, and I kept a very close eye on it so it wouldn't get too cold. So uh, that was a bit of a crazy experience. Um, but, uh, you know, having that plan, if I go out with friends, they know, I mean, we sit down and I say, if you're comfortable with this, I would like to show you what to do in an emergency. Um, so we go over an emergency plan. Um, they're very good at keeping tabs on me, making sure that, uh, you know, my blood sugars are within range with, with me. And it, that's just part of the, the great support system that, um, can really get you motivated. I mean, all of my friends that go out with me, my husband, they're all cheerleaders. They're fantastic. Have you found a community of, of folks with either diabetes or another chronic illness that has, um, that you've been able to really invest in and engage with and that have in turn invested in you? 
Truthfully, I haven't, but I, out here in North Carolina, well, I also haven't put, I think, the time into finding that community. I'm sure there are plenty. Um, but I have, uh, since I've been in North Carolina, I uh, helped start the um, Real Women Outdoor, or Real Women Fishing Adventures uh, North Carolina Um which is a group of women that go out and we have a lot of women that come in and join that group with chronic illnesses that are looking for that support group. Um, it's one of those things that I'm not expecting them to tell me that they have a chronic illness, but I also welcome it and, and I want them to share their experiences with me. So it's, it's been a lot of fun meeting them and getting to know them and helping them find that support group that they need. Are you very transparent about it with the groups that you go out into the field with, or do you usually hold off and wait um, until it's until maybe there's some trust built or some rapport built? Um, I'm an open book, <laughs> so and with an insulin pump on me, it's pretty hard to hide anything. But, um, but uh, I. I if I'm out with a group of people that I don't know, I, I'm not going to hold it back in case there were an emer- emergency, like, Hey everybody, I am a type one diabetic. Here's my medical supplies. If anything does happen, if you're uncomfortable with it, that is okay. Um, but generally everyone is very open about it and I'm more than happy. A lot of them say, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that, you know, uh, can you tell me more about what's going on? And they're, they're very interested in learning more about the disease itself. It's, it's fascinating. I, I think that, yeah, from, from just being a, um, a friend of a couple of folks with a chronic illness, I, I felt very fortunate to feel more educated and to be educated by them on a lot of these things. It's, it's fantastic. And um, I think it's worth lending an ear and making, you know, changing your schedule up or changing something up so that they can be part of it. Um, and be it like food choices or whatever. Um, and I think that runs, I think that's applicable in a lot of different spaces. So, so thanks for sharing that. I, I'm just, I'm so impressed that you brought it up and I think it's just something that we don't talk about often enough, nearly ever. And I think that it, is really cool. And it will probably, um, I don't know. I I think there's a lot of people that will probably be like, huh, I'm in that same boat and, and thanks. So if, if somebody were to reach out to you, Elisa on this, um, who, how could they, would you be comfortable with that? And how could they do that? Absolutely. So, um, uh, they can, uh, message me on Instagram. Um, I'm at (laughs) starry eyed and outdoorsy on Instagram. Um, and I mean, email me, give me a call. I'm, I'm open to everyone. And, um, I think my last kind of closing on that was just, uh, being outdoors can be the most amazing experiences of your life. And it is so beneficial for your chronic disease. Um, if you ever feel like there are obstacles to you doing that, believe me, there's going to be other people that feel the same way. Um, and there are resources out there for you. So just get out there and 
do what you love and, and check out some of our most beautiful places in this country. Yeah, I really appreciate the vulnerability there and you sharing about, you know, it, you know, being a little bit of something that held you back to start with and how you've kind of overcome that. And I think that'll be very inspirational, inspirational to folks that maybe haven't heard anybody, you know, speak on that before. So thank you again for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to share it. So before we get to our closer for hits and misses, and Maggie, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll have you go first. But um, Elisa, would you share one of your favorite field experiences? I, I'm just very curious, given all of the places and very different places that you've lived. Oh, goodness. Where do I even start? Um, uh, I'll bring it back to education a little bit. And and. This is with a, a dad and his two kids. I working for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I took them on a nature hike. So I would host these regular weekly nature hikes for families that were camping or lived nearby um, around the park, and uh, took these this small family on this hike. And it's more of a walk than a, a strenuous hike or anything like that. But spring in Colorado all the warblers are out, <laughs> all the other birds are out, all the reptiles are out. It was just a beautiful time to be there. And um, taking this family out and showing them the birds, having the kids learn how to look through uh, binoculars and look at the different birds and try to describe the birds, go further on a trail. And I think my favorite experience was this trail where um, as we're walking, we see deer tracks. And I point out to uh, the kids, look at these deer tracks. You can tell they're deer because of the shape of their hooves. And then we start looking at, as we walk down, I start noticing that the deer tracks are getting further and further apart. So I start showing this to the kids and I say, these deer started running. You can tell they're running because their tracks are further apart. You can see that they kicked up a little dirt and a little bit further ahead you see coyote tracks come right up behind them from the side. And those kids just lit up so brightly. It was just an amazing experience. Um, I've enjoyed experiences with um, raptor education, um, really seeing um, rehabilitated animals at the state parks, um, taking women fishing for the first time and helping them catch their first fish, which was something they never thought they would be able to do. Um, like I said, get out there and experience things. It's a lot of fun. I can, I, you, you just provided so much imagery like that. Those sorts of things just absolutely thrill me, especially seeing kiddos. I mean, light up and just be so unbelievably interested in something like that. I, that's just, oh, that, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and Maggie, I feel like you get to see it every day. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it is pretty funny. My daughter's like two of her first words were bug and fish. And so, <laughs> um, 
it's really fun getting to watch her grow into things. And like, she was terrified when she first had bugs crawling on her this summer. And then I took her outside on Saturday and a, a surfing fly, it's like a bee fly. It's not a bee landed on her. And I was like, okay, let's see how she reacts. And then she was trying to pick it up. And then she was like, bug, bug, bug. <laughs> it's just the watching the wonder develop in their eyes is such a fun, fun part of life. May I share one more? <laughs> because it made me remember another one that yes, I please. feel like I have to share. <laughs> so uh, in Colorado, one of my favorite places, which I mean, there's so many beautiful places in Colorado, and I don't know what makes this one location stick out in my brain so much. Um, but maybe it's the experience, I guess, that makes it stick out. But the Poudre Canyon up by Fort Collins. Um. Took a camping trip up there with friends, and one of our friends brought his two two daughters. And we get there, and all the guys start setting up camp. And I say, "Well, I'm not needed here. Let's go check out the river," because <laughs> I was planning on going fly fishing while the rest of the guys were setting up camp. Um, and then there were two little girls just kind of like sitting around, not really sure what to do with themselves. They didn't really spend a lot of time outdoors, so I took them down to the river and started turning over rocks with them showing them the bugs underneath the rocks, um, showing them about, showing them the different plant life and getting their feet wet, getting them turn over rocks with me. Um, went back to camp, had dinner. They went to bed cause we got there kind of late. Um, and they could only really stay. The dad had to go back to work the next day. So he packed them up pretty early <laughs> and, uh, set off and, we got a phone call about 15 minutes out from him leaving saying, uh, what did you do? They've been screaming the entire time that they wanted to go look for bugs under rocks. <laughs> so uh, if you ever want to find fun things for your kids to do outdoors, go find a river or a creek and turn over rocks. <laughs> I love that. That's one of, one of the best pieces of parenting advice I got for having a baby on a boat was like, bring a bucket of rocks for on the boat so that they have things to throw in the river as you go down and then stop and flip rocks over as you're going. Cause it's definitely, um, I mean, it's something that sticks in my memory from being a little kid. So I, I can see how it resonates. Yeah. I, I, you're right. It sticks in my mind too. Like flipping, flipping something over and looking at all the critters underneath. Unbelievable. But Maggie, I like that idea of keeping rocks in the boat curious for sure but i really yeah. like it yeah, like i promise this isn't from like a previous incident like we keep these here on purpose <laughs> and elisa i i imagine if you were to yeah talk to those gals at this point in their life that's probably a really notable experience for them i of somebody teaching them and showing them the natural world that's just it's just wonderful <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, um, I really hope so as well. Uh, though one of them has recently graduated high school, and I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Have you asked them? Have you asked them if they re recall that? I haven't, and I need to need to connect with that family one more time. I would be curious. So, all right, Maggie, let's hear your hit or miss for hit or and miss for the week. Oh, we were. Um 
chit-chatting a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> I was, uh, so I, full disclosure, I'm eight and a half months pregnant. Um, and so I had a stress test cause I'm a geriatric pregnancy, although they won't call it that specifically to your face anymore. It's advanced maternal age. Um, but I had a stress test at the doctor today and, um, I had to go pick up my brother-in-law from, from the airport and it was like two hours after the doctor's appointment. And so I ended up like the doctor's appointment took a little over an hour. So I had like a 45 minute to an hour window before I had to pick him up. And I was like, mm, I'm going to stop at Flat Creek on my way to the airport. And Flat Creek is, um, in right outside of Jackson Hole. And it's one of the notoriously, um, more tough creeks to fish and it's, you know, PhD type of Creek, spring Creek fishery, you know, very glassy top water. The fish are really spooky, but it's only open a couple months a year. It just opened on August 1st. And so I was like, I'm going to whip it in flag Creek and see if I can catch a fish before I pick him up from the airport. And being a bug nerd, um, I like to go back on my phone and see if I have pictures from bugs on this day in previous years in certain places. And sure enough, I had a picture from Flat Creek from two years ago, three years ago um, of a gray drake hatching. And I was like, okay, town of gray drake, went out there, caught two fish, <laughs> and then bounced. <laughs> so it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy how, um, how hatches just end up on the exact same dates year after year. Um, even though there's changes in water levels and things like that, or, or just somehow that like the fish have that ingrained in their brain that they're supposed to eat that on to the, on that day. So, um, I like it when my bug nerdery comes into play and then it actually pans out into, into catching a fish. So that, that's my hit. And, um, I w- was able to get my brother-in-law on time and all was well. All right, Elisa. All right. So, um, this is going to be my first archery season coming up. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of been an all summer hit. I've been practicing that bow every day (laughs) over summer to prepare myself for archery season. And, uh, I just got a, uh, tree saddle in and I'm going to give that a try and I'm super excited. So that's my hit. That's awesome. Any misses? Ooh, I've been pretty Literally blessed. Literally or figuratively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of the above. And if not, then that's great. <laughs> I, good for you. I'll share um, my... Oh, go yeah, ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sitting here going, oh, I don't, I don't know if I have any that I feel like have been misses. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm going to miss the first part of all seasons this year because my baby's due on Labor Day. (laughs) Maggie, with this knee surgery, that's my miss is I'm going to, I'm going to be taking my tags back to Colorado Parks and Wildlife because I won't be hiking around at the mountains. There's, I can't, I can't load bear yet. So it's not going to be ideal to, yeah, take a rifle out there and, and hopefully harvest something, an elk and a mule deer. But on the other hand, one of the hits, I, I just attended, um, we have an ambassador in w- Wyoming, Sabrina King, and she's planning an elk hunt this fall. And um, they're going to set up a wall tent. And I'm hoping to make it up there, right? I've offered to make it up there to be camp cook. So um, if you can't oh, hunt, awesome. then at least you better cook and maybe do some glassing in the meantime. 
at least you get to be part of the experience, right? That sure. sounds awesome. Sounds For like sure. so much fun, though. Man, I, but talking to everybody, talking to each one of you ambassadors, I'm just like, man, I need to spend more time with you all. <laughs> like, we need to stop doing podcasts and just go spend a lot of time in the field. I'm all, I'm all about it. Just let me know when and where. <laughs> Deal. Deal. Well, thank you both. And did you have any last takes before we close out today? Thank you. It was wonderful talking with both of you. Yes. Thanks for joining us on the Artemis podcast. Um, to you and all of our listeners, we hope everybody's having a great week. And until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.